Hello, I'm Tristan Abbey, editor-at-large of the Alia Review of Books. This is episode 14 of the Alia Review podcast. Joining us today is Dr. Luke Barnes, lecturer in astronomy and cosmology at Western Sydney University. He earned his PhD from Cambridge and is the co-author with Geraint Lewis of two books, A Fortunate Universe, Life in a Finely Tuned Cosmos, published in 2016, and The Cosmic Revolutionary's Handbook, or How to Beat the Big Bang, published in 2021, both by Cambridge University Press. The Cosmic Revolutionary's Handbook is the Leah Review Book of the Month for September. Dr. Barnes, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. Well, let's dive right into it. How does The Cosmic Revolutionary's Handbook, that is the most recent book, relate to the previous book, which was about the fine-tuning of the universe? Well, the first one, A Fortunate Universe, is about how the fundamental properties of our universe, you go down to the bottom level of science as we know it, the basic things the universe is made out of and what it's doing, and those seem well put together for life to exist in the universe, in particular for the the sort of complexity of sticking the bits together in a certain order that life needs in order to, to function. So that's what the first one's about, the, the, the sort of connection between fundamental physics and life. But as Geraint and I go and talk to various audiences about our books and what we do and about the science that we do, we are specifically cosmologists, you know, astrophysicists, so we're specifically interested in you know, the universe as a whole and what it's doing, you know, expanding and all that stuff. We found that as we were giving talks, and we've been doing this before we published the book, but especially afterwards, there's a whole bunch of people who are very keen to share their ideas about how the universe really works, that we sort of, I guess they want to tell us how to do our job, which, you know, feel free, but there were some common themes of the reasons why those attempts weren't working. You know, they kept saying there's some sort of conspiracy within science that they weren't getting published because there's some great conspiracy against them, whereas actually there were some basic things about science that they just weren't doing properly. And these aren't arbitrary rules. They're there for a reason. Things like, you know, you should have a mathematical model that can make mathematical predictions. And the reason for that is the things we observe about the universe are often numbers. So if you want to go and say, I understand the universe, you better be able to understand those numbers. But basic things like that. So the second book is about how to properly challenge a scientific theory if you want to do that. And along the way, of course, you have to understand the scientific theory in the first place. So it's sort of a bit of both of those things. One of the fascinating aspects of the book is that although it is uh, about how to beat the Big Bang. It is also the story of how the Big Bang itself was revolutionary, how it overthrew other theories that came before it. In this sense, the book is kind of the story of how the Big Bang grew up. Is that a fair description? Yeah. So at the time, it was assumed that the universe is overall just static. It's just sort of sitting there not doing very much. And that that wasn't just some arbitrary you know, stipulation, you look at the night sky and the stars don't seem to be moving very much. It's sort of big news when something moves. So the planets are literally named after the fact that they move through the night sky. It's the Greek word for wanderer. And a new star or a supernova or a nova or something like that, you know, a comet is a major event in the night sky because other than that, it's just there. So when the Big Bang Theory, although that that name sort of comes later from one of its opponents, from Fred Hoyle, who didn't like the theory, so he called it this Big Bang Theory. Anyway, and it's stuck, despite several efforts over the years to find a better name. But 
when that theory starts, and it's in the 1920s when it really starts to kick off, it's up against a very strong assumption that the universe is static. But then there's the assumption slightly later on in the 40s and 50s, there's an alternative model that's built up, which is what scientists do, just put forward some idea about the universe and see what happens. See if it fits the data, this is the, the steady state model then came up in the 1940s and 50s. Again, Fred Hoyle, that was his favorite idea with Thomas Gold and Herman Bondi and a few others. And this was the idea that the universe is expanding, but has always been on average the same. So as matter sort of expands out, more matter gets created in the gaps to, to keep the whole thing the same overall. So there's been sort of back and forward with the Big Bang and those other ideas for you know, the last 100 years of cosmology. I think many readers will find that the book is a pleasure to read, that it has a personality of its own. It doesn't shy away from the details, some of which are mathematical, but it is also very accessible. Talk to us a little bit about how to beat the Big Bang. What is out there that is not explained or that the Big Bang cannot explain very well? In the book, Dark Energy and Dark Matter feature prominently. These are terms that many people have heard but probably don't know the definitions of. Yeah, sure. So we spend the last chapter of the book outlining all the major problems that the Big Bang Theory is facing at the moment. The, the important thing to say about that is you, you sort of got to buy your ticket to that game before you get to, to play. So an awful lot of the emails and discussions we have with, with people who want to tell us how to do our job is people wanting to jump straight into the big mysteries of the Big Bang, like dark matter and dark energy, and explain those. And what we point out in the book is, well, well, hang on. So there's some very well-established results in cosmology, like you know the universe is expanding and the cosmic microwave background. And you need to at least have some sort of explanation for those to buy your ticket to then explaining the big cutting-edge mysteries. But the two mysteries there are that in Einstein's picture of how gravity works, is, is sort of a, just imagine a big black box if you're not interested in the mathematics, but you put in what the universe is made of, and then you turn a big handle on the side. And what comes out of that is how the universe expands. So you tell it what the universe is made of, and it will tell you how the universe expands. And the problem, what dark energy is, is that the way the universe is moving, the way the universe expands, which is the thing we can actually observe, it, it's accelerating. So not only, so there's a galaxy over there, just watch that galaxy for a bit. It's not only moving away from us, that's what we discovered in the 1920s, but in 1998, we discovered actually most of the galaxies are not just moving away from us, but they're moving faster today than they were yesterday. They're accelerating away from us. And the question is, all right, what do I have to put into Einstein's equations? What do I have to put into the box in order for an accelerating universe to come out the other side when I turn the handle? And the answer is, none of the forms of matter and energy that we've observed by some other means. It has to be some different form which has different properties, so we call it dark energy. We kind of know what it has to do. It Basically, as the universe expands, it needs to not dilute the amount of energy. It needs to be sort of a constant. So it is related to Einstein's cosmological constant, but that's another story entirely. So that's dark energy. And in another context... When we look at the way galaxies, well, there's a few pieces of information here, but the, the way galaxies rotate and orbit and, you know, they are sort of swirling around. Okay, so you've got a star here. It's going around the center of its galaxy. The thing that's pulling it around in its orbit is all the gravity from all the stuff inside its orbit. 
which is keeping it in, right? Pulling it in just as the Earth is being pulled towards the sun by the gravity of the sun. And so we ask the question, okay, how much stuff does there need to be in a particular galaxy in order to hold, basically hold itself together, given how fast everything's going around? And the answer is that there needs to be more stuff than we can see. There needs to be more stuff than there is in stars and even in the sort of matter that we know of between the stars. And so this extra form of matter is called dark matter because we can't see it. But there's a couple of lines of evidence that's pointing to those those sorts of facts. So people say this is some sort of, you know, conspiracy theory or you're just trying to, you know, shore up some theory that doesn't work with some ad hoc assumptions. Yeah, well, look, we, I mean, we'd throw away dark matter and dark energy tomorrow if anyone had a better idea. But as far as we know, this is there are several lines of evidence that point in this direction as what the book's about. If you've got a better idea, make it precise enough that I can get predictions out of it and then go publish it. Well, aside from cranky emails that you get from cranks, who do you read? Uh, who are your own influences on your work academically? There's a great lineup of good science writers over the years who got me excited and interested in science when I was coming up and who I still enjoy reading today. So John Barrow actually passed away, I think, last year or the year before, has written a number of excellent books on cosmology. He was a cosmologist at uh, Cambridge University. Actually, Stephen Weinberg passed away, I think, just in the last week or two, uh, sort of a massive... <laughs> A massively important particle physicist and cosmologist, wrote a number of, of very good books. There's a book of his called Dreams of a Final Theory, which was published in 1995, but that's a, still a great read. Paul Davis, it's a really, really just anything by him is just excellent on a whole bunch of things. A great example of sort of thinking outside the usual limits of, of science. I should just look at the bookshelf behind me and <laughs> think of a few more. Even more broadly than that, it's hard to argue with the ability of Richard Dawkins to write at least. I end up disagreeing with him about a lot of stuff, but the man can write and, you know, is a, a useful sparring partner, at least on that, as can Stephen Jay Gould on those sorts of, of issues. Within cosmology today, you've got writers like Jan Levin and Sean Carroll. Yeah, there's a real wealth of science writers who are doing some really excellent stuff in presenting some rather complicated this was this was what got me in these these sort of complicated ideas of cosmology someone was able to boil them down for me and i got hooked well you've definitely joined their ranks what's your favorite novel i'm not a kind of read my favorite novel 50 times over kind of person so yeah my favorite novel is kind of the most recent one that i enjoyed i suppose i recently read um frankenstein and i enjoyed that a lot that was a lot of fun it's sort of not what you think it would be. I don't think I've even watched a Frankenstein movie. So all of the Frankenstein lore I've got is sort of third-hand references to it in other forms of media. So actually reading the original novel. So I, I, I enjoyed that wonderful book. Uh, there's a fantastic bit right at the end where it's basically a motivational speech from Dr. Frankenstein to a whole bunch of scientists. I don't know, have you read it? No, but I have heard oh, everyone yeah. tell me that Frankenstein is not the monster. It's the doctor's name. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the most basic <laughs> thing, <laughs> thing you learn about it, yeah. But there's a hilarious scene at the end. There's a bunch of people in an expedition that he's in, and for whatever reason, they're all thinking of giving up. And he produces the most amazing motivational, inspirational 
speech to get everyone back on track. And it's just, it's fantastic. Anyway, so at the moment, that's a book I recently enjoyed. I'm not sure about favorite, but that's that's one I mentioned. Final question. I'm sure this may be annoying to be asked after pouring your heart and soul into a book over several <laughs> years, but what's next for you? Do you have any projects going on right now? Yeah, so Geraint and I have written two books now, and we've we sat down. We got a bunch of others that we sort of were thinking about uh, writing. So yeah, th- there's a number of issues that have been raised as we've written these two books that we wanted to explore a bit more. One of them is the role of symmetry in the universe, which is something that we find the typical even even sort of fans of science don't realize how important it is when you're an actual practicing scientist that this is an an incredibly important idea and another one would be just the future of once you've in a fortunate universe we think a lot about you know where life can exist in the universe and you start speculating it's almost inevitable about what might happen in the future for life in this universe if we depending on how long we stick around and so we, we have some thoughts along that line as well Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Dr. Luke Barnes, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. This interview was conducted on August 3rd, 2021. I'm Tristan Abbey with the Aaliyah Review of Books. Join us online at www.aaleoreview.com. That's www.aleoreview.com.